Hi, everyone. I'm Jill Smokler, and I've got issues. I've got a ton of issues, actually, and I'm pretty sure you do, too. And I'm definitely sure we'll both feel better after talking about them. And that's what this podcast is all about. So let's get started. Today, I am very grateful to be talking to my friend and resilience expert, Deborah Gilboa, also known as Dr. G. Dr. G, a board-certified attending family physician, works with organizations and businesses to identify the mindset and strategies to handle stress without burnout. Author of the new book, From Stressed to Resilient, Dr. G is a leading media personality seen regularly on Today, Good Morning America, and is the resilience expert for the doctors. She is also featured frequently in the Washington Post, the New York Times, Forbes, and countless other media outlets. Hi, Dr. G. Hello. It's so good to see your face. Yours too. I've been really anxious to talk to you because everybody I care about right now um, and anybody who has a brain is living on the edge. I can't remember the last time I asked any, um, what I would describe as normal functioning person, how they are. And that person has responded with fine. Like everybody just sort of size and says, you know, considering or, you know, in this world or right now, you know, things are just crazy. And I look at people who are coping really well and I wonder what the hell is wrong with them because (laughs) I just don't know how that's possible. But your book has me questioning that and wondering, you know, if, if there is a way to handle stress with a little more grace than um, sitting in bed all day, picking at my nails and watching reruns of Charmed from 1999. (laughs) So that is why I'm so happy to be talking to you today. I think you're totally right. Although I think that a real silver lining of the pandemic is that when we ask people how they are, we're actually expecting a real answer now. That is very true because I, I don't know how anybody in this climate can really can be fine. I mean, is there such a thing as fine these days? Right. Truth. And also good on us that we no longer require people to be fine all the time or expect that we're just going to get fine and move on with our conversation. We're asking because we want to know. And if you do say, I'm fine, likely you'll get side eye from the person you're talking to. Like, is that for real? (laughs) And you also won't get into any conversation of any depth or anything at all, of course. Uh, So what is the reason that some people are able to handle stress and some of us just aren't at all, myself included? Okay. So the, the strength that we're talking about, from my point of view, when you talk about handle stress, is the strength of resilience. And In my work and a lot of social science work, that word resilience is defined as the ability to navigate change and come through it the kind of person you want to be. There's fancier language. I've turned it into English, but that's really what it comes down to. Not just the ability to navigate difficulty or struggle or adversity or obstacles, but all change. And I think that one of the reasons that so many people are acknowledging and discussing their stress is because there is so much change and our brains see all change as stressful. And that's something that not a lot of people recognize. It's not something we're really taught. 
right? So that idea that all change, the what we might qualitatively call good or bad or neutral or distant or close doesn't matter. Our brains perceive all change to be potentially dangerous. And I can explain briefly like the neuroscience reason why that is. But if all change is stressful, then you can see why there's so much more stress because change isn't new. But the rate of change and our awareness, our global awareness of all the things that are changing at any given moment has really picked up. You know, my parents didn't know if there was even a major weather event on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. But we know now about a tsunami in Japan or about a flood in the Philippines or whatever it is. They didn't know about a lost child in another state. They didn't know about the results of the elections in of, of smaller elections in another state or even necessarily another county mm-hmm. when we were growing up. And now we, we are- got our news on milk cartons, on right, missing kids exactly. on milk cartons. Right. So now for good and ill, because most things have both sides of that coin, we know all the things all the time. And all that change, and it's not only about the news, it's also knowing what's going on with our cousin in another country. That would have been a letter that we got weeks later and wondered what happened as opposed to knowing right now what's going on. And so all of that change is swirling around, causing all these chemicals to dump in our brains all the time. So you asked me way back when you started this question, why is it some people seem to handle it better than others? And I want to point out two things. One, Some people have developed their resilience skills more than others. And two, resilience is a growth commodity. That means it goes up for some people at some times and down for people at some times. Everybody has periods in their life where they are more resilient and less resilient. So somebody who looks to you like they're doing okay right now, even if that's authentic, they had other times where they weren't doing okay. Mm, That is comforting. Now, explain to me, I want to go back for a second. Explain to me why your brain does not know the difference between good stress and bad stress. Like if I... Well, like good change and bad change, right? Good why change it and bad change. Right. Yes, yes. Right. If I'm... Right. When I was moving Won into... the lottery, life. thumbs up. Um, new COVID variant, thumbs down, right? Right. So right. here's why. Your brain, everybody recognizes at some level that our brains have like a million functions. They're keeping our kidneys working and keeping us breathing and keeping us uh, remembering that we should not leave our hand there when we close the door. I mean, our brains are just doing a million things all the time, but our brains actually only have one overriding purpose. And that purpose is to keep us alive. Mm. Good news. We are currently alive. <laughs> that Yay, is the brain. Right. Way to go. You've done it so far. Bad news the brain knows that it will be a change that kills us. And so it is suspicious of all change in a pretty binary way, like change bad, status quo good. Mm -hmm. When we all know that often the status quo is not the best thing for us, right? That, That we need to make a change to have things work out more the way in line with our values and the way we want them to. And not all change is bad. Intellectually, we get that. But at our base chemical level in the amygdala, which is in the very center of our brain and mediates fear and anger and those kind of responses, change, potentially bad, all change. So we have these safety reflexes, just like how if you bring your kiddo to my office for their well child check and you sit them up on my table and I take out my little reflex hammer and I tap their knee, they kick. They can't choose to, they can't choose not to, like it just happens, it's a reflex. Our brain has three reflexes every time 
it hears about the possibility of a change. So I want you to test me on this. Can you tell me about a good change that you found out about recently? Can be big or small, doesn't matter. But something that you would definitely say was a good thing. Um, a good change, like a good, my mom's yeah, like taking good news me, that you got. my mom is taking me to Paris in July. Is that a change? <gasps> That's a great example, a right? Great, so great example, right? So I hope that when she told you about that, you felt excited and happy and maybe a little bit relieved. Cause like, maybe you've always wanted to do that, but you weren't sure how to make it happen, whatever. Yes. At the exact same time, I wonder if you noticed that your brain probably said, Ooh, Will I lose the opportunity to do any work that I've promised to do? Will I not be here for one of my kids at a time where they might need me? Mm -hmm. um, what about my dog? Are they going to be, is there a way to keep them like safe and happy and reasonable while I'm gone? Uh, do I have any bills due that week that like, do I know how to pay them ahead of time? Like what, what could be in danger if I do that? That's oh, Debbie, reply. it was plane crash, plane crash, plane crash. That was my brain. <laughs> okay. So if I go, will I die? And my right. kids won't have a mom and Correct. I won't exist anymore. Right. So really straightforward loss. Okay. Second thing, distrust. Um, is she going to come through? I don't know your mom at all. Just, you know, <laughs> that's my disclaimer. <laughs> is she really going to come through? Has she ever promised yes. something like this before and then changed her mind? Uh, am I going to have to cancel at the last minute for something that's beyond my control? Does she does she really have the money to do this and the mm -hmm. time? Is that reasonable to ask of her? So distrust. Does the pilot really know what he's doing? Is totally. he really trained? Did he get enough sleep? Has he been drinking? Right. Mm. So that's the third, that's the second reflex. And even as your brain might be starting to process through that and be like, I've gotten on planes before and it's been okay. I'm going to be able to do this, right? Like I'm going to be able to get past my worries about this. Um, I can trust this. If my mom says she's going to do it, it's reasonable to assume she means it. It's reasonable to assume that I'll be able to commit to it. Even so, your third reflex doesn't care about those first two. The third reflex is discomfort. So it says, what if the food makes my stomach upset? Mm -hmm. What if after that air travel, I um, just feel kind of swollen in my ankles because that happened to me once before? What if my mom and I need to share a bed in the hotel room, which I feel too old for? What if <laughs> she likes museums much more than I do and it's not going to go the way? So discomfort, those three reflexes of loss, distrust, and discomfort do not negate the happiness or the excitement or the relief that you might have in the news but you cannot turn those three reflexes off. Mm -hmm. You can dull them, you can quiet them, and I can teach you how, it's really simple, but you can't turn them off because they're keeping you alive. Mm. So because our brain does that with a Paris trip, with a new COVID variant, and also, by the way, with all the little changes, like you pick up your phone and it says, um, updating operating system. And you're like, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> You hire a neighbor kid to mow your lawn and you look outside and there's someone mowing your lawn and it's not the neighbor kid. <laughs> and you're like, wait, what? Every change, no matter how small or big, our brains have to go through those three reflexes. Some people will be listening to this and they'll say, I don't notice that I do that. You may have developed coping mechanisms to ignore those things, but you may notice that when there's too much change, you get a stomachache or you get a migraine, or your sleep is really disrupted, right? It will, your, your body will show you that these things are happening because your brain is like, well, if you're not going to listen to us, we'll cause symptoms in your body until you pay attention. We have those three reflexes to keep us alive. And so it is understandable that people are like, man, 
I didn't even do that much. Not that much has changed about what I'm working on. And yet I feel so much more overwhelmed than I used to. I feel so much more winded by things that I used to know how to handle or I think I did. Or I feel so much more winded by going for my goals than I think I should be. It's deconditioned all of us to be exposed to all this change. But there's some good news. Want to hear it? I really do. You know I do. I need to. Yes. So here's the good news. If you are thinking, uh uh-oh, if every change is stressful, and I know that stress is poison, and I've been told to avoid stress because I have a chronic medical condition and it makes it worse, or it makes me more irritable, or whatever, I've been told to avoid stress, how do I do that? Here's the assumption in there that's actually wrong, that the medical community has been getting wrong for at least 20 years. Stress is not toxic. Stress is a tool. Um, The nearest analogy, and I've been working on this for years, that I've been able to come up with is looking at stress like exercise. They both suck. This is the good news? No, no, I promise you we'll get there because you don't actually have to get off the couch for my thing. Okay, Um, okay. (laughs) You got me back. Okay, so stress is like exercise. They both suck for sure. But if, okay, so here's the exercise analogy. If I told you that walking up one flight of stairs to my bedroom to have this conversation with you today, I got a little out of breath. I'm healthy. I don't have any underlying lung issues or whatever, but like one flight of stairs, if I go too fast and I'm really puffing at the top, you might be too nice to say it, but you know what I need. Oh, I would find that completely relatable. Yes. Yes. But you know that if I want to be able to walk up a flight of stairs quickly without feeling out of breath, unfortunately, I have to walk up more stairs, right? Like. You know, if you want to walk upstairs without feeling winded, you got to walk up more stairs. Mm -hmm. In that same way, if you want to be able to pursue your goals, right? Because a lot of the stuff we want requires change. I want my kids, uh, all of them, to grow up successfully enough to move out of the house and pursue their own lives. That requires change. I want to grow my business. That requires change. I want to support my dad better as he ages. That requires change. So a lot of things we want involve change. And here's this awful doctor who just said all change is stressful. To be able to deal with the changes that I'm dealing with and things that are coming up and feel less overwhelmed, less winded all the time, it's actually stress that will get me there. I know that sounds weird. And some people might be thinking, wait, 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 but this is dangerous. And it can be just like if I pursued an exercise regimen and ignored the fact that I had a stress fracture in my foot or that I had asthma, but I wasn't treating it. If I exercise injured or ill, I can damage myself. Mm -hmm. And if I deal with too many stresses all at once, or I welcome extra stress, meaning I don't set some boundaries and say, that's not my thing. While I'm already starting to feel overwhelmed, for sure, I can be damaged by that. But if with the right support, and the right intention, I take on some change, I can strengthen myself on purpose so that I don't feel as winded all the time by the things that are coming at me. Okay. Before we get into those steps, I just want to back up one second. Um, Is because something, something that's confused me in terms of definitions is burnout is burnout essentially the the purely negative version of stress i look at this as a continuum 
Stress is what happens with change. Okay. Uh, if you, I don't know, I don't know if this is a dream of yours, but if you got invited to have a televised conversation with someone you really, really admire, uh, and whoever that was, you decided to say yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. You would say, wow, this excitement feels a lot like stress because it is. Yeah. That's stress. Overwhelm is when you're like, and also I have to book travel to get there that I don't feel confident about, or I have to go to some sort of dinner the night before with people I don't know. And that makes me, now I'm starting to feel overwhelmed. The end of that spectrum, stress, overwhelm, burnout, just like exercise, which by the way, can feel awful for mm-hmm. those of us who don't love exercise Amen. to soar from that exercise and still trying to exercise again the next day to injury. Okay. So parallel spectrums. Okay. And when it sounds like I'd, I'd be willing to bet because I know I've been there a lot recently that a lot of people listening are like, yeah, I'm already deep into the overwhelm part of the spectrum. Maybe I'm already at the burnout. Okay. So you don't in that situation want to be like, so bring on more exercise. Let's double the weights. That's not the answer. Yeah. Figuring out first how to heal yourself some, how to recover and I can help with that, but so can a lot of people you know and a lot of things you already know. Everybody's an expert in themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm an expert in this neuroscience and some strategies, but you're an expert in you, Jill. You know some things that do not heal your burnout, and you probably know some things that do. I now do, but mm-hmm. I didn't before. Um, That's hard one. That's hard one knowledge for sure. Yeah. I, uh, the last four years, I feel like I'm now like, six, seven months out from sort of learning that hard earned knowledge. But um, four or five years ago, I found myself with my marriage completely broken. I moved into a house that was fully under construction. I had just left Scary Mommy and I was, you know, completely mourning that. Everything just kept piling on top and my health, my physical health fell apart. My mental health fell apart. And I would personally describe that as burnout. Um, Evan, I agree. Yeah, More it felt it, like right? it. Evan the other day heard that my youngest heard the term midlife crisis on TV and t- turned to me and said, you've already had your midlife crisis, right? <laughs> it's like, I, I certainly hope so, honey. <laughs> I think so. And I sort of chalked that up to what that was. And it took a lot of therapy and medication and years to finally feel like my feet are firmly planted in the ground, on the ground, in the ground, on the ground, whatever, to feel like I'm standing. Um, but it was baby, baby steps. And I so, needed- okay, let's try and let's try and save other people who maybe haven't had that experience from getting there yep. in this way. What you're describing are red flags. You said my health was falling apart. My relationship, my primary, you know, adult relationship was falling apart. My housing situation didn't feel stable. Those are red flags. Some other red flags that won't surprise anyone that you may not have had, I hope, some self-harm behaviors, um, that passive death wish, like everybody would be fine if I just didn't wake up tomorrow, that would be better. Uh, Hurting yourself, substance abuse. There are a bunch of red flags that when I see them, people go, oh yeah, those are bad. I get Mm -hmm. that. I want people to think for a minute about their yellow flags. So I'm happy to disclose a couple of mine. And I might ask you, Jill, to think about a couple of yours. Mm -hmm. Yellow flags are like when you're starting to go from stress to overwhelm, 
what are some things you notice in your own capacity or behavior or words? Um, like for me, one of my very first yellow flags is when people ask me how I am, instead of having a positive response, like oh, one of my favorite things to say, because it's true with four kids of my own is busy and good. <laughs> um, when I go to busy, but good. Okay. Or when I go to, okay. Or when I go to, uh, I mean, mostly when I start to qualify that, like kind of almost throwaway answer, that's a yellow flag for me. Another yellow flag for me is when I start to forget stuff that's on my to-do list. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just somebody who has a brain for dates. Like you could tell me right now that you have a dental appointment, August 4th. And for no good reason, I would wake up that morning and be like, oh, I hope Jill's dentist appointment goes well. Like that's (laughs) not useful information, but that's not useful information for me or for you, for me to have. And yet my brain does that. When I'm starting to get overwhelmed, I forget important stuff on my calendar, on my kid's calendar for that day. So those are some yellow flags for me that I'm not managing, I'm not, I'm not handling the stressors that I have or that there's just too much coming at me. Can you think of any of yours? I'd say mine are the basic, like self, not self-care in the normal self-care, but just sort of taking care of day-to-day things, sort of like you're saying, like keeping things afloat, calling people back, keeping, staying on top of appointments, paying bills, doing just sort of taking the trash and the recycling out, just everyday things that I just let slide and then they accumulate and it, and it gets more, it gets to the point where I just avoid it and avoid it and then it piles up and it gets to be an issue and bills are overdue and then it just becomes more and more complicated. Yeah. So unfortunately, some of those yellow flags can make a spiral a little faster. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's an in the weeds example for me. If I'm trying to negotiate with myself to not bother brushing my teeth before I go to bed, I have too mm. much going on. Like, mm. and I know that's a simple, silly thing. And I usually brush my teeth anyway. But if I start having that argument with myself, like, it's not that important every night, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm too busy or too tired. Yeah. And so when you know your own yellow flags, it's super helpful. If you're able to then say, I got to change something. I got to ask for help. I got to use one of, and we're going to talk about these, I hope, but I'm going to get to use one of these resilient skills so that I don't continue spiraling downwards. Yep. Yep. So let's talk about these skills. Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) So you tell me, let's, let's start talking. So here's the good news. When I was first learning about resilience, it was because in med school, they said to us this thing. My teachers said, stress is the new smoking. Tell your patients to avoid it no matter what. And then we would leave class and they'd be like, you should also be running a research project and you should also be in charge of an interest group and you should also, also, also. And I thought, are they A, trying to kill us so we don't take their jobs when we graduate? Or B, are they wrong about this blanket statement that stress is the new smoking? Because neuroscientifically, we know that all change is stressful, even the stuff you want. So what's the truth of it? I have in the 20 years since then done a bunch of research about this. We had this idea up until about 15 years ago that the ability to navigate change was inborn. It was like your eye color. You were born resilient or not. And it is true that everybody has a starting point. We've all had or known a toddler who could run into a room, smash their head off a coffee table, fall down. You could see the birds circling around their head and they'd be like, whew, that was a lot. And then get up and go play. Yeah. And we've all seen or raised a toddler who could, you know, their 
stuffed animal was sitting a little crooked and the next three hours were lost to tears and struggle. So yes, everybody has a starting point, but it turns out that just like the growth mindset that we have about our kids, academics and musicality and athleticism and artistic ability, there is growth in resilience and it isn't only through struggle. As a matter of fact, some people go through struggle repeatedly and never get any more resilient. It's not magical. You struggle and you get stronger or you don't struggle and you never get stronger. Resilience, it turns out, is eight skills. And everybody has a little bit of all eight of these skills or a lot to start with, but anybody can grow any of these. And that's why I find this so valuable to spend my time on because it's not your eye color. It's not like... Oh, well, if you're blue eyed, sorry, you know, (laughs) it is something that we can all affect. Yeah. Like, I hate to say it. Exercise. exercise. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to make me exercise by the end of this. I know you are. No, no, I swear (laughs) to you, that is not my goal. Although, of course, we should. (laughs) Fine. (laughs) (laughs) When I tell you what these skills are, you're going to be like, Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So if we talk about resilience as the goal is to be able to navigate change more easily and not just more easily, like by committing a felony, like if I have to navigate the change, this happened to me during the pandemic, someone stole my identity and started applying for uh, PPP benefits in my name. That wasn't me. Lovely. That happened to a lot of people during the pandemic. So I could navigate that change by, I suppose, hacking into somebody else's identity and stealing their money. But that's not resilience because resilience is navigating change and coming through it the kind of person you want to be. And the kind of person I want to be isn't incarcerated. So <laughs> that'd be a story. I got to navigate. Right. Totally. But I'm sure I would be terrible at it. I'm positive I would get caught. So I have to be able to navigate change and still be true to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, in my book, I say with integrity and purpose. My purpose doesn't have to be your purpose. Yeah. It's not like it has to be something everyone would admire. It just has to be something. I'm comfortable with that I would admire. So if that's the goal to navigate change, the kind of person I want to be, you won't be surprised when I tell you that if you're struggling to do that, one skill that helps you is building connections with people. Mm -hmm. Because Jill, you're navigating a big work change and you've looked carefully, I bet, at your connections, at your active connections, at your weaker connections, at your dormant connections and said, Who could help me navigate this? Who do I trust? Who do I believe in? Um, Who do I want to be aligned with? Because it helps me be more of the kind of person I want to be. And I think building connections is one that most of us, because it's not necessarily about having more friends on your friends list. Mm -hmm. For most of us, it is about deepening the connections that we have. Mm -hmm. For me, it's hard to separate stress and depression. And depression really prevented, prevents me from outreach So it was really, it's really difficult for me to connect with people when I, when I'm feeling shitty. I just, that's a really tough one. Um, But I know it's true. I know that's when I'm, I know I I want to go inward, but it makes me feel infinitely better, you know, reaching out to people. So I do know that to be true, but it's hard. I know that to be true for a lot of people who struggle with depression and anxiety Mm -hmm. and I want to mention that it's one of the reasons I'm so grateful that I didn't learn in this research that there were only two skills, mm-hmm. you know, building connections and one other thing, yep. because then I'd be like, well, you got to do it anyway. Yep. And what yep. I can say to you now is, okay, when you're not in a deep depression, anything you can do to revive or keep healthy your connections will be helpful to you when you are, but 
there's seven other skills. So if that one doesn't work for you, because you're an expert in you. So yep. you might say to me, nope, not that one. What else okay. you got? Totally fine. Next up. Okay. So another one is setting boundaries. Oof. And it sounds really weird to say that it's easier to navigate change when you say, mm, not going to do that, not going to do that, not going to do that other thing. But if I say to you, okay, um, let's say the change I have to navigate is um, my health center has two sites and I've always worked in one. And they say to me, hey, Dr. G, starting next month, we need you to go to the other site. And I'm like, Ooh, that is a big change. I don't know where I'm going to park. I don't know where I'm going to eat lunch. Um, I feel like I'm going to lose the relationships with the people I have here. I feel like I'm going to lose some of my patients because they're not going to drive to that one, right? I'm in loss, distrust, right? I, you've kept me here for 16 years. Genuinely, I have to get why maybe you're wrong. And this isn't there. And then discomfort, like I said, about where am I going to eat lunch? And where's my desk going to be? And is the air conditioning too cold? Like all those three things. Yeah. But then I say, okay, I have choices. What are some of my choices? And if I say, I need, I need to like be able to ask my MA for things because to do for my patients and I need to talk to the scheduler and I, I don't know any of these people. If I say I have to get there the first day and I have to learn everybody's name, well, that's like 35 people. That's not going to help me navigate that change more easily because then I'm going to be super worried and unsuccessful in that goal. Mm -hmm. If instead I say, okay, first day, because remembering names is not one of my top skills, I need to learn three names, the site manager, like I got to connect their face to their name, the site manager and MA and the front desk person, everybody else, I may get introduced to them, but I'm giving myself permission to not remember their name and just ask them again next time. Okay. That's a way of setting boundaries that makes it easier for me to navigate that change. Does okay. that make sense? That makes sense. And it's different than what women, especially powerful women like yourself here, when I say set boundaries, you think I'm saying, say no to people that you would really like to please. That's exactly <laughs> what I think you're saying. Yes. Yes. And there is some value in that, apparently, but <laughs> I'm not great at it either. Okay. But as we, and, and one of the activities that I suggest in my book to build the skill of setting boundaries, if that's something you choose and decide you want to build, is I, I teach you how to build I teach you how to build that skill of setting boundaries in your shoe closet. <laughs> I know it sounds funny, but let's I leave people it. out of it entirely. No, so, I, I think it's perfect. I love it. There are a lot of ways to use these skills that don't include um, feeling awful. <laughs> we don't have to feel awful to get stronger. Good, because we feel awful enough is what we've established. Yeah. Okay. I know so. I'm not going to get to all eight of these, but I want to talk about just one more. And it's yes. the skill that I would gift everyone in the entire world with if I could. Yes, Of please. these eight. And that is managing discomfort. That's a great one. I talked about how those three reflexes are about change that our brains have are loss and distrust and discomfort. And you might think that people get mired in loss the most or in distrust the most, but it turns out that the where people get stuck most often is in the discomfort. They just freeze up. This is too uncomfortable. I don't know how to handle it. So they avoid, like you talked about, they avoid or distract themselves often with negative coping mechanisms. Um, procrastination isn't necessarily a negative coping mechanism, but when it starts to have a negative impact, like your electricity gets shut off because you didn't pay the bill, mm -hmm. not because you couldn't, but because you were too uncomfortable to do it, right? 
Couldn't is a whole other thing. But if it's because of discomfort, then you can see how not paying your electric bill eventually becomes a negative coping mechanism. Just saying like, you know what, I'm not going to do bills tonight might be a useful, neutral coping mechanism for a night or even seven. But once you get to more than 30, it's going to cause you problems. Having more positive and neutral ways to manage your discomfort doesn't mean that you never eat too much, drink too much, pick a fight with your sister, do negative things that that cause you damage. It means you do them a lot less often. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I believe you have an exercise of sorts that you want me to participate in, correct? I do. I do. And actually, it's something that anybody who's listening could also do. And if you're driving, you're going to have to kind of do it in your head. And if you're not, if you're sitting, I'm going to encourage you genuinely to grab your phone or grab a piece of paper and a pen, because writing it out is pretty easy. Um, In my book, I have it in I have it sequential. But really, all I need you to do, if you are if you're looking at a piece of paper, is turn it sideways, and make three columns. Okay. This piece of paper is only for you. Nobody else is ever going to see this. You're going to shred it or burn it or whatever. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to encourage you to be really honest with yourself, not with me, not with anybody else, with yourself. And on that left side, what I want you to do is to make a column of everything you can think of that you do occasionally or often when you don't like how you feel to feel better. And this is everything. Maybe you So this, this is like the like the binging this is the good bad ugly stuff doesn't matter secret stuff okay. um something that like doesn't sound bad except if you knew how often you do it or how much you do it right like it doesn't matter okay. what it is and so okay. while you do that well i'm going to give some examples of my list yeah. okay so that you can do yours in private and other okay. people yeah i'm not i'm not reading this right i don't want you to read it because okay. you have to be able to have total trust that this is just for you and you have to be really honest with yourself. So you might put on there things like maybe you punch a pillow or maybe you pet your dog or maybe you um, listen to music or a podcast or call a friend or play a game on your phone or um, turn on the news or turn off the news. (laughs) Uh, Maybe you drink alcohol. Maybe you get more irritable with someone that you live with. Maybe you blow off your to-do list. Maybe you pinch yourself to try and focus on that instead of, or cut yourself to focus on that pain instead of what's really, you know, got your attention at that moment. Um, Maybe you um, text somebody that you shouldn't, somebody who you've been in a relationship with that you know is really damaging, but it gives you a lot of chemicals that distract you in your brain. Um, Maybe you, uh, some of mine are uh, ice cream is a definite distraction for me sometimes a cone, sometimes a court, right? So that's an issue where it's it's only damaging if it's the whole court, but it's not damaging if it's a cone. So some of this is about amount and frequency and some of it is just what you do. So when you have time, I want you to make that list as honest and as long as you possibly can. I also want to mention, because I know a lot of the people who listen to your podcast still have kids. And this is something you can do with your kids, but you don't get to look at this list. (laughs) Okay encourage them to make it. Now, if they're little, if they're really little and you're writing the list, encourage them to be honest and say, you're not getting in trouble for anything that you tell me. Okay. Okay. Um, You know, even if they say sometimes they sneak in and punch their brother and then pretend that they didn't, this isn't about getting in trouble Okay. because after you've got that long list, now what I want you to do is I want you to go through and put a line through anything that 
down deep, you know, is damaging to you or to somebody else. That's literally my entire list. It probably isn't because you probably sleep to distract yourself sometimes, right? To change how you feel. You may take a shower. You might call your mom. You may pet your dog, right? It's not, you might ask one of, you know, text one of your kids. So there are some things on there. There are some things you do that didn't come top of mind for you when I asked about this because you're maybe busy thinking about all the negative things that I, I was leading you towards. But there are some things that you do that are either good like maybe you go outside and take a deep breath or you walk or whatever. And there's some things that are fine, that are neutral. Okay. Okay. There's some neutral ones I can add in. Thank you. Right. So, and, and it, this takes a while. You're not going to get all this stuff on first pass because we, we don't remember, we judge ourselves a lot more for the ones we know are negative. So they come to mind more easily. Okay. It may take a few days of just going through your day with this in your pocket and adding things to it as you notice. Like you notice that when you're really overwhelmed, you turn off the radio in the car mm-hmm. or you turn on the radio in the car. Mm-hmm. You may notice that you leave the windows open or you close the windows. It may be things that you hadn't thought of as being coping mechanisms, but you have, as adults, you, we have hundreds. Okay. We do. You might wipe down your counter. Or you might leave your dishes in the sink. Either of those might be examples of coping mechanisms when you just don't like how you feel. When you look at that list and you scratch out the things that are damaging to you or to somebody else, I want you to copy over whatever's left and anything else you can think of into that middle list. This is all of your current neutral and positive coping mechanisms that you can think of. Okay. There's two things in the book that I lead you to do from here. One is... If you're looking at this and you're thinking like, Jill, let's say that you got that opportunity to have a televised conversation with the person you admire the most in the world. And I I don't know if it's like, you know, a political figure or a celebrity, whatever it is, but let's say that happened. And you came to me and you're like, I want to say yes, but super uncomfortable. Really? How do I manage my discomfort? I'd ask you to go to this middle list and put a little asterisk by all the ones you could do while you were headed towards this opportunity, Mm. while you're car, while you're backstage in the green room waiting to do it, maybe even while you're up there. It might involve wearing more comfortable shoes than you ordinarily would have, or tucking um, a talisman of some kind into your pocket or into your bra, whatever. You'd put an asterisk by the ones that work for this particular situation. Hmm. That's your third list on the right. That's if you're using it to say how to be more comfortable when you're at your in-laws or how to be manage your discomfort while you're at your child's therapy session, or how to manage your discomfort while you are um, training for a speaking engagement. doesn't matter. If you're asking, how do I manage my discomfort about a particular thing, you need this third list. That's one thing I want you to do is think about what's the change that's top of mind and bugging you the most. The other thing I want you to do is useful your whole life. And that is, I want you to add to this middle list all the time. And one of the ways to do that is not just by inventorying your own life. It's by asking the people that you know what they do or Mm. listening to interviews with people you admire because people talk about their coping mechanisms all the time, even if they don't call it that. I like, and I have actually resources in my book of places that you can go to to hear 98 things that celebrity told. It's not People Magazine. It's, 
oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the outlet, but told a magazine they do to feel better, which is Mm -hmm. really the same thing. Mm -hmm. And you could look at that list and be like, nope, nope, nope. Yes. Oh, I want to take that one. So I want you to harvest other people's experiences. If you read a biography of somebody that you really like, if you hear something on your morning radio show where they ask somebody or you send in a question that's like, ask them what they do to manage their stress when they feel uncomfortable and put a post on your social media that's like, okay, people, I heard this crazy interview on She's Got Issues and I want to know, what do you do that you're not ashamed to admit to manage your discomfort? And you'll get ideas that you hadn't thought of. When I do this at corporations, and I do, we put just the neutral and positive coping mechanisms only with people's permission Mm. on one big whiteboard. And people always get at least three they hadn't thought of that they can do at work. Mm, It'd be really interesting to do the negative ones. (laughs) (laughs) It would. And we're not going to do that. (laughs) Because trust matters. (laughs) Um, yeah, no, that's really, really interesting. And what's so interesting about this book, which is fantastic, is that it's not touchy-feely. It's not woo-woo. It's so tangible and it's so business-like in that, you know, it's like the exercise you just had us do. It's, um, this is so helpful. It's not, I'm going to take this with me and add to it. And there are exercises like this throughout the book that that you can really work with at your own pace and pick and choose, like you said, if there are parts that aren't applicable to you. But when you do, it, it's it's like a workbook. It's not like a like a normal guidebook that sort of, you know, you just read through. Um, I love how there's no has to. Right. There's no have to in here. And there's no formula like you must do this and then this and then add two parts of this. What I'm saying is, hey, could you take the expertise that I'm not sure you recognize you have in your own stress management and add in a little bit of information and you'll get strategies that really do help you handle what's going on in your life and feel less overwhelmed by it. Is there anything else that you want to touch on? I feel like you you have this down pat. You're so wonderful at this. I, first of all, in total honesty, there are so many times that I'm struggling with something and my partner or my best friend or my kids will be like, aren't you the resilience expert? Why is <laughs> this happening right now? And so the last thing that I want to say to you is none of this, none of this stops us from feeling. It makes us more competent at navigating our feelings. I don't want to stop anybody from feeling. Our feelings have a lot to teach us. Um, My feelings helped me realize that my marriage wasn't the right place for me to be anymore. My feelings helped me realize that um, I could be the kind of doctor I want to be and not the more machine-like doctor that med school was trying to churn out. My feelings have made me a better person but I also need to not get beat up by them so that I can't be the kind of person I want to be. So the last thing I want to leave you with is all that empathy that you try to have for the people that are important to you. I hope you're important to you because you deserve that empathy too. That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much. I always love talking to you and I love this um, information that you've imparted on us and this wisdom. Wonderful. Thank you so much. 
thanks so much for listening today and come back next week for another issue. She's Got Issues is produced by Kristen Kelbley, Gwen Sound, Kira Shine, and me, Jill Smokler. Please do us a favor and rate and review the podcast and tell a friend because she's got issues too. 